Welcome to PTG TV. This is your host, Antonio Hicks, aka Escaping the Matrix. In this episode of Real Talk and Conversation, I welcome on my guest, Madam President of the Gwinnett Democratic Party, Ms. Brenda Lopez. In today's conversation, we're just talking about who the real Brenda Lopez is, how she got involved with politics, her thoughts on the party going forward, and her personal ideas on how we can attract new electors to the party. Welcome to the show, Brenda. Thanks for accepting the invite. Antonio's pleasure and um, great to have everyone join us that, that's watching and um, hopefully yeah, we can have some real talk. So I guess the first question is who's the real Brenda Lopez? <laughs> um, so I'm just a person. No. <laughs> are we all? <laughs> are we all, right? Um, it just, you know, it comes like from, I'm just a bill, I'm just a person. I, I, I guess for me, more my, my background in terms of what, what I identify as a career is as an attorney. I've been doing primarily immigration matters for the last eight years um, as a sole practitioner, but actually recently started a new role with the Winnet District Attorney's Office as a senior ADA, um, primarily doing or will be doing special projects um, regarding more of the restorative justice platform that our, that our newly elected District Attorney Patsy Austin Gatson has. Um, and so a lot of who um, the real Brenda is, is really just, you know, that that everyday work right it, one because i enjoy the work that i do and the other because you know you got to work to pay the bills yes um and my capacity before as a, as a state representative is part-time legislature and still so i had to juggle between again what i call the job that paid the bills and work and then the the elected work and then and and i guess a third prong to that is somewhat related but the advocacy volunteer work but um you know, that's sort of as of you know, 2021, uh, who I am. But um, I grew up, I was born in Mexico, but I grew up in the state of Georgia since I was five years old. And um, for me, that's sort of like really who I am, what I call, you know, the Buford Highway tourist. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I lived in all sorts of places up and down Buford Highway from where now it's uh, Brookhaven all the way to uh, the Doraville area. I ended up going to six elementary schools growing up precisely because, you know, we were always kind of moving every year to a new lease, just, you know, trying to um, because rents would be increased or because there was um, the ability to get a better rate somewhere else if you move for the first time. So it's not always the issue of, of, of dealing with affordable housing, right, and or trying to find affordable housing. So um, I grew up my K-12 in DeKalb County. Eventually, I graduated from Cross Keys High School that is in uh, in Brookhaven currently. When I started school, I was... Um, the first few wave of particularly Latinos, but also API communities that were up and growing um, in in DeKalb County, primarily the, the Buford Highway corridor, but also that boom that happened after the or actually prior to the Olympics, because uh, when um, you know I came in, in December of '89, but during the early years of nine, uh, the '90s, one of anecdote that I remember from um, who was the former. A Mexican consulate, uh, Teodoro Mouse, that has then passed since since has passed away uh, last last year. Um, when he was general consulate, he would always mention the um, the story. And when he had chats with folks, that the then INS um, legacy organization, which is now no more like ICE and USCIS and these other Department of Homeland Security agencies, used to be housed under um, a department called INS Immigration and Naturalization Services, and um, 
So apparently the field officer for the Atlanta field officer for INS called the consulate and said, hey, tell your people we're not checking papers. Uh, we need them to come work because all the construction was being delayed um, and there was concerns that, you know, you know it would not be uh, things would not be ready in time for for the Olympics to start. So. That really was an onset of what increased, um, particularly for the Latino community, a growth uh, that started in that De um, DeKalb Buford Highway corridor. And so, you know, that's just kind of where I grew up, riding the, the bus um, Route 39 up and down. Sometimes when I missed the school bus, I'd catch the uh, I'd catch Marta down to school. I'd stop by the Waffle House that's in Doral. It's still there. <laughs> it's still there. Uh, it, yeah, it's still there. So that's what I would do. I because because the because the bus would only go that far, and I had to go into the, into the middle school, and so I just walk there. But on my walk, you know, stop by, get some Waffle House, and uh, you know, that's more or less uh, growing up. Um, sort of in a very close knit community. Again, I started off with being one of the few only Latino students, really having to interpret or learn English um, very trial by fire, and then becomes sort of like de facto interpreter where teachers, parents, my own family, of course, was always relying on me to, to help with, um, you know, anything as basic as like call and ask, you know, the hours or something to like call and find out, you know, issues about court, issues about um, different government agencies and why a service or issue isn't being resolved. And so I've, I had to do that uh, since, since a very young age. Um, so by the time that was me going into school in kindergarten, by the time that I graduated from high school, my, my high school that I graduated from had um, turned into about 80% uh, Latino student population at that school. So uh, it, it, it was a, it was a quick um, 15 year process of transition of that area. And um, actually I did move to Roswell for about a year, my ninth grade year. And despite the fact that at that point, I, you know, I had been in the States for like 12 years or so, that was the first time that I would say that I experienced real cultural shock. And that was one of the first few times that I really, really on a day to day basis was reminded that I was other, that I wasn't from here. Um, because Roswell, especially then in, in the early or late 90s, um, was predominantly white, very middle class, upper middle class. And so, you know, got all the name calling, all the picking on, um, not only by the students, but interesting enough by, by some of the teachers as well uh, that were disrespectful that, you know, my English teacher, when I came in, kept talking at me, pulled me out of the classroom, kept talking at me about how she was going to help me and uh, put me in ESOL so that I could learn English. Mind you, I had been at that point in school, every single year of my schooling had been in the United States. And so, you know, when I tried to tell her that I did speak English, she was like, oh, she was like, but I just want to make sure that you understand well. So you should probably be in another classroom. And I'm like, but <laughs> I'm like, if I haven't learned English at this point, it's just not going to happen. Right? Yeah, you might as well chalk that up. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, interesting experiences like that. And we had a couple of uh, situations, you know, they, at that school. So that was really you know, funny enough. Again, the first time that I really felt othered um, and that I realized, again, that regardless of whatever my own being raised here and whatever acculturation I have had, uh, that I, I nonetheless was always going to be seen as a foreigner, as, as basically not from here and not belonging. So. But we were there. I was only there for my ninth grade year. 
fortunately, I say we moved back to DeKalb County, ended up graduating from Cross Keys. And even though uh, that is also the first time that I realized uh, what disparities were, I mean, real disparities. I mean, we, we grew up, my family, both of my parents are working class individuals. They have less than elementary school education. Um, I can't say we ever wanted for food or, or, or a safe home, but we were still limited financially, right? Or on their, on their working class salaries. Uh, but you know, but when you're growing up, you don't know, you don't know what you don't have. Right. And, and again, you know, I can't say that like I, I went without food or home, which I, that wasn't the case, but nonetheless, still very low income. And so, uh, but you don't realize that growing up. But I definitely understood what what the economic disparities and school inequity was when I came back from that high school experience, despite the fact that I disliked being there. Uh, when I came back, I realized that, you know, we had trailers. We didn't have these beautiful buildings. We didn't have all of these clubs. Uh, we had old books. We didn't have computers in the classrooms. All of these things that I saw at Roswell High School. Uh, and, you know, the kids, obviously, we didn't have what those kids had. Um, and so, you know, that that was for me, again, a very, very eye opening, even at that time, even though I couldn't process what that meant. I still it still struck me as something's odd, right? Even if I didn't mm-hmm. understand what exactly it meant that there was those economic disparities and what it meant for our education. But I definitely knew that something was not right. Um, so that was, you know, that 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 was that impact that I had. And one of the reasons that I'm both thankful, one, that I got to see that early on in life. And also thankful that I got to go back to Cross Keys, despite all of our, our shortcomings and that's considered a bad school and still is, um, you know, that's also what I started realizing. What does it mean to be a bad school? Right. When we had such great students that have done such great things um, and that have surpassed a lot of obstacles, despite um, many barriers, both legal, financial, uh, personal health Um but nonetheless, you know, overall considered, you know, a bad school with bad kids. And so, you know, just but for me personally, being able to go back meant I was able to go to a high school that was culturally competent, that the teachers were predominantly culturally competent as well, at least far more than they were at Roswell. And uh, that um, that I could feel comfortable, right, that I didn't have to be picked on at least not because I wasn't from here, right? I mean, we're kids, you know, you're always going to be picked on for some reason, but, but at least because of that. And so, you know, that, that was of interest, but still, you know, in, in cross keys, I still had the experience of talking to a school counselor that told me that because I was bilingual, you know, I would make a good secretary. Um, and that, you know, that would be a good receptionist somewhere because, and so, you know, that was also the extent of the expectations for us as, as young people at that school. So, you know, just, it's, it's, it, it's very interesting that dichotomy, that part of me is very thankful that I got to go back to a place that I, at least I felt more comfortable. Um, but that nonetheless has a lot of shortcomings for the students that were there then. And quite frankly, that are there now. Mm-hmm. And so it's all of these things that kind of we stuck in the back of my mind, right? Just kind of growing up the experience, the experience of just simply going out with my dad to like state parks in the early, late 90s, early 2000s, when, you know, we hadn't had the same type of population boom that we've had. Um, 
in, that we now see, especially these last five to 10 years. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the looks when you're driving or walking around uh, and um, sometimes the commentary <laughs> that when people see you when you're the only person uh, of color um, that that is predominantly around. And to a certain extent, there in, in many, especially outside of Metro Atlanta, they're used, they're used to, to a certain extent, even at the economy of, of, of seeing African-Americans. Um, but, you know, not when it comes to to other communities. And so the nitpicking about being, you know, not, not black. And so you must be something else, um, but you're still not white. So, mm. you know, just all of those things growing up, I think, you know, were 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 very impactful in my life. In addition to just simply, I mentioned my father, he raised me since I was seven. And so we have um very very strong relationship and uh you know very very foundational for me about always kind of making sure that i knew what was going on in the world making sure that i you know wasn't naive to the problems that we faced both how as a household and um and externally right to to the issues that i was going to confront but um but yeah that's just you know a, a bit of me growing up and experiencing just being in Georgia. So what made you want to go down the path of being an attorney? So, you know, I I think that's also kind of a thing since I was young because, so my parents, again, divorced when I was seven. And so even though my dad's attorney was of Cuban background, he had very broken Spanish. Mm -hmm. So they actually couldn't communicate as well. So I ended up interpreting for a lot of my dad's divorce um, conversations with, uh, with, with his attorney, you know, and most of the time it it went something along the lines of like, Oh, my dad says this, that, and the other, but that part's not true. (laughs) (laughs) You know, adding my own, uh, my own narrative to, to my interpretation. And so funny enough, when we were waiting and, and to, for a hearing, we were outside and, you know, the attorney was probably just trying to keep me busy or something and just started talking to me, asked me what books I read. I told him I read Goosebumps at that point. And he mm-hmm. said he read Goosebumps before, too. And so I thought that was interesting. You know, like, what are you going to tell like a whatever I was, you know, second year, second grade student or something? But so I asked him what he did too, and tried to explain his job. And he said, you know, he helped people. And I was like, oh yeah, like I want to help people too. So I'm going to be an attorney. Uh, and so that's also part of the issue about exposure, right? For, for especially um, young people in, in, in low income backgrounds, it's just, mm-hmm. you, know, you can't be what you don't see and right. what you don't know. And so that was my first exposure to a quote unquote person in some sort of professional capacity. And so, you know, I was like, okay, I want to help people too. So I'm going to be an attorney. So as I was growing up, the common question you're always asked, what are you going to do when you grow up? Um, it was real simple for me. I was just like, oh, I'm going to be a lawyer. I had no idea what that meant. I didn't know what you're supposed to do. I sure as hell didn't know you were supposed to go to college, much less law school. Um, I didn't know you were going to get in debt for the rest of your life. Yes. yes. All of these things I didn't know. But when I told people, hey, I'm going to be a lawyer, when they asked me, what are you going to do when you grow up? Everyone seemed to um, find this answer um agreeable, right? Like, oh, that's a good idea. And so I don't know if just circumstantially, it just stuck with me that that was my go-to answer. And that's what I always said, even when I got to high school, still something that I would say, but it was really again, back in high school with Cross Keys, that just as I had that experience with that counselor, I also am thankful for the French teacher that I had there because she was real fundamental in my early life. Uh, You know, she told me, to be a, a, a lawyer, what that meant, you, you know, that I needed to go to college and that I needed to go to law school. And she told me about what those things were. 
And she also sat down with me and helped me fill out my application and review my personal statement. She she told me what FAFSA was because I, sh- I sure was like they didn't know what that was, and she helped me fill it out. Uh, and so, you know, that's really when I started really tr- understanding what, if anything, it meant to continue going on um, in your education and, and how you went about becoming a lawyer. And um, and I started getting a better understanding about you know what it meant more than anything and, and how you got to become one. And so I think circumstantially, I, I don't know if it's just, it was, it was an answer that everyone seemed to approve of. So I kept saying it so much that I ended up doing that. Um, and actually it wasn't until I graduated college, I was going to take one year off, um, which turned into three before I applied to, to, well, two before I applied to law school, three before I started law school. But it was at that point when I was applying to law school that I actually, for the first time in my life, I was like, really, like, is this really what I want to do? Um, I've always just said that for so long that it just, again, just became kind of almost more of a habit than the natural choice or thought. Right. And, um, you know, that I had always been interested in, in education access and education opportunities because, of course, at that point, I had much better understanding about what why it matters um, to continue going on through your education. And one of the things, because I talk to a lot of middle schoolers and high schoolers and, and now a lot of young adults and, and college students primarily, that um, for me, education, you know, most of the time when we tell kids, oh, go to college, particularly kids of of, of um low-income background, we always talk about it as an economic incentive that Mm -hmm. if you go to college, you're going to get a better job and you're going to get a better pay. You can do better in life. But for me, even then, I understood that um, college wasn't just an economic um, benefit. For me, it was the way that I was able to little by little learn how to better defend myself and how to better defend other people, um, how to better help myself. And then, of course, then help other people. Right. Mm -hmm. So it it gives you it, it gives you a sense of greater resources and greater access. And so because of that, I, you know, it was the first time that I thought like, maybe I should do something else. You know, maybe I'm not going to go to law school. Maybe I should consider, I don't know, doing a master's or PhD. And one of the few only things that I considered was potentially doing some, something in leadership, uh, in education leadership mm-hmm. and, you know, thinking like, again, what do kids need, right? Our kids need, need to be able to move through that track of higher education and, um, and, and, and understand it for the two purposes, right? The economic, of course, but then of course, the purpose of um, the intangible aspect of higher education, which is just the ability to, to have better agency about your life. So, you know, that's, but ultimately I decided that I had put so much effort and so much, so much thought into going to law school. And I thought that if I went to law school, eventually I didn't have to practice law. I could do advocacy work, but I couldn't go into a master's PhD program and and practice law. So, you know, I figured that that was still probably the best route. And um, of course, you know, at that point, so much, so much um, encouragement and support and a a few attorneys that I started meeting during college um, outside of that first divorce attorney that um, I thought, you know, that just, that just seemed to be the path to do. And, 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 but in all honesty, even then, even before I applied to law school, I I still wasn't, I, there's just still so many things I didn't know. Mm-hmm. I didn't like I was supposed to take the bar right at that point and what that was. So every, every level of education, every level of 
jobs that I've had has been what I call, you know, basically going in blind and learning things, you know, building the plane as you're flying it and, and a lot of trial by fire, making a lot of mistakes along the way, doing, you know, things I shouldn't do mainly because I didn't know, um, it didn't dawn on me, even though in hindsight, it seems like so simple and you should have, you should have known that you should have thought about that. Right. But, um, but that's uh, honestly the experience usually uh, that you have when you have um, someone that, that again, doesn't come from a family that can guide you specifically and hold your hand along the way. And you have to figure it out all on your own and, um, or, and as best as possible with people that help you along the way. Um, so, you know, it's, it's very common. I see it a lot in, in what I call my kids. I don't have children of my own, but the, the young folks that I spend some time with, um, you know, it, it, in 2021, it's the same recurring theme that I hear in their lives that they've gone through too, because there's just, even though the, the communities, particularly for Latino and API communities are much, much larger than when I was a, um, a young person. Mm-hmm. Uh, they still don't have that background of family resources and family connections. So uh, basically everything that I went through seems like that's exactly the same thing they're going through um, in 2021. So, so did you think that you speaking over yourself was an outlet? Like you really thought you wanted to do something else, but you knew just being an attorney will give you that means to be able to survive and pay bills and take you out of the community that you were in as a kid. Well, I, I no, the thought was more like, should I do something else? Right? Mm-hmm. Has has the idea of going to law school or being a lawyer just just something that was said so often that that again that it was a natural choice that it was just kind of a, a certain life circumstance. Right, you spoke and, it over uh, yourself. <laughs> right, but um, but but then ultimately, I, I again I, by that point, especially post post college, I. I I knew more and I understood far more where ultimately I decided that, you know, going to law school was still probably the, the better choice for, for a lot of the reasons that you mentioned. And, and a lot of, again, some of the things that I mentioned about providing you access and resources and opportunities that aren't just economic gratification, right? The ability that I have the flexibility to switch jobs, do something totally different at any given time to go into policy work, to do just about anything, really, even if it's not practicing law has, um, you know, it, it, it's a versatile benefit. And quite frankly, the other thing, uh, which is still true, right? It's sort of at attempts at being more credentialed and, and being, um, and having some sort of equalizing, right? The, the equal, yeah, the equalizing that comes with, with higher education and in postgraduate education. And so I, you know, I really considered all of those things, um, but ultimately, I think that that just sort of like my personality and the things that I wanted to do and my interest in, you know, political science and policy work and government affairs. Um, and also my focus has always been more on the global global affairs, comparative politics kind of work, um, international governments, non-governmental organizations, all of those things that, you know, kind of news related items that I would read about and learn about. Um, it's, it's more my wheelhouse or the things that really get me interested, right? Or, and that I find interesting more so than just exclusively, for example, I've had just done education policy simply because I, I love education issues, but I am interested in a whole host of different issues. So it ended up just feeling, feeling right. So I was going to get on to another question, but I guess I want to ask you about the most recent stuff over in the Doraville area. Knowing that you grew up there and you saw how it was back then in the, the mid 80s, early 80s, 
How do you feel about the transition that's taking place right now and the gentrification that's taking place right now? It's a uh, gentrification as, as any, you know, and, and, and just to be clear, we, we all know we call it gentrification, but it's just, you know, white middle-class people coming into neighborhoods that before were considered bad areas, bad neighborhoods that, you know, people wouldn't buy a piece of, you know, a piece of tree, much less a piece of land um, with a house on it um, because we were there. But mm-hmm. now with, again, the expansion and the cost of internally in the city of Atlanta, of course, the expansion out and the expansion out to Winnett County, um, um, so, you know, it, it, it's not great, right? It's not great to see mm-hmm. your home literally as uh, other people might have said of me of being taken over, right? And, and being displaced, the legacy residents being displaced from there um, and beyond just the legacy uh, residents, the legacy business owners, right? Those right. little small mom and pop shops that started up, particularly for the Latino and the AAPI community, were a lot of, um, quite frankly, those that are, have been able to gain some substantial wealth as business owners started off with some little store, some little corner, whatever, selling whatever it is, service or, or, or product that they were selling. And so to see these businesses dis- displaced, right. Um, it's um, uh, obviously it, it, it's um, I'm not happy about it. And, and especially, you know, with the incorporation of Shambly and the corporation of, of, of Brookhaven as cities and that movement for cityhoods has mm-hmm. unfortunately, as far as I've seen it, um, these cityhood um, cityhood movements has been only to be able to bring in those white middle class folks and kick out those low income communities of color, um, not just the residents, but again, the businesses that that, you know, that really you know, everywhere that I would go shop and buy something um, where I felt comfortable come, you know, walking in and um, I wasn't going to be followed and I wasn't going to be stared at. And um, so, you know, it's, it, it's tough, but unfortunately we, we know that this is a common practice and um, as much as the, the city councils, um, especially more recently have, pretended or tried to have done otherwise the reality is that's what's happening and honestly i don't think it's just it's going to stop happening right uh, no so mm-hmm. that is no it's it's sad because i was i mean i guess you could answer the question did they ever consider like freezing the people the residents that was there their their taxes like they did with like mayor Kasim reed what he did around the fulton county area as it was spending out a belt line he froze the taxes of the residents that had already been there so they wouldn't be affected by the tax hike that will come in after they built out the belt line. Cause I mean, I saw that development taking, I mean, cause I mean, like you said, like, you know, I grew up here too. So I saw all that changes that took place around the area. And to me, like it's the, I'm being reminded about what's happening in your area. The same thing that happened when the Olympics came in and it displaced part of what is it? East of Cab, West of Cab, then pushed them all, everybody out all the way out to the suburban and rural areas. Why they got rid of all the, not to say getting rid of projects was bad because <laughs> East Lake Meadows off of, off of uh, East Ponce and uh, Candler Road was pretty bad, but still to see them displace all those communities and push them out with no plans, no help, no jobs around the area. I'm seeing the same thing now in the Doraville area as they push out all the older residents, they're building all the newer million dollar homes. And now the old GMC plan, they're about to tear it down and make it into what is it live workspace area and for movie studios. Right. Right. Um, well, no, none of that. Again, most definitely there was no hike um, freezes. And, and if anything, uh, the apartment, because Buford Highway, especially that corridor, has a lot of apartment complexes, again, where mm-hmm. I kept going, <laughs> going to all these different schools. Um, they, if anything, started 
doing a lot of heavy code enforcement, which then the apartments, you know, made it into like, oh, well, we're going to paint up and brush up and look nicer, at least externally, even though internally, you know, there, there's a lot of um, lack of care for for the for the apartments themselves. But but nonetheless, because they were doing the, the pretty makeup on mm-hmm. on the space, they were jacking up rates. And so a lot of folks were being displaced purposefully to try to get them to kick in get kicked out um, just by displacing them based on um, the rising rates of, of rental uh, apartments. So, you know, that's just what's been happening all up and down Buford Highway. So, I mean, what are your ideas on that going forward? Like, how do we prepare for equal housing? Because, I mean, that's been a big issue across the country, especially here in the state, because you're talking about, especially with us pushing for like, what is a uh, minimum wage being increased to $15 an hour. But even still with that, that's not enough to pay for housing the way it is now around the, with the boom taking place within Georgia, around the Atlanta area, where the median with rent is about $1,000 to $1,100 for almost right. a studio apartment, which you can't even, <laughs> you can't raise it. Well, you can try to raise a family, but you can't raise a family in a studio apartment. No, no, no. Yeah, exactly. All, all those average rates are always for a one bedroom or a studio. And, uh, and again, you're not not the most suitable for for a family right so you know what to do that's you know what one of the questions and one of the reasons why i think that municipal elections right that are coming up this year are important because ultimately a lot of the gentrification particularly with the quote-unquote economic development that happens happens um precisely in these um with these cityhood movements and so particularly as it relates to us here specifically in Winnet as we're seeing the same thing, right? Um, rates of everything go up, both values of homes and um, rental properties that, uh, you know, cities are, are making that more confounded for the same reasons that it's happening, you know, started happening in, in, in Brookhaven and started happening in Doraville and Chambly. So, you know, who's elected matters. Is that going to fix it all? But by no means, you right. It, mm-hmm. it, it really is going to continue to take a continual push as a movement for um, for affordable housing, right? Even the term affordable housing, like what is affordable, right? I mean, I've, I've been told here by City of Norcross and other places, which tend to try to be as inclusive as, as possible um, and, and, and tend to try to help that um, they're telling me that these, you know, mid to high 200s, you know, homes are, are affordable. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like uh, they're like, oh, look, you know, we're, we built these like townhouses that are like high 200s and, you know, for affordable housing. I'm like, that's not, no, affordable. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. <laughs> Because so, you're banking off the fact that you're hoping that people have median incomes, of, if dual incomes of at least forty five to 50000 a year. Right. And of course, with the pandemic going on, all these jobs, even no matter if you're college educated or not, all these jobs being displaced, especially my company, <laughs> they right. got government money and they had layoffs. Mm-hmm. They, uh, yeah, it's like who's buying? And that's not that's one of the biggest things that's been confusing me. Is like, who the hell is buying all these houses? Right. It, yeah. But they are. You know who? People that are coming outside of the state, because I keep hearing it all the time. They're like, because for people that are coming from large metro areas outside of Georgia, coming mm-hmm. and, and buying, a, a, you know, a three, four bedroom, brand new home 
and high 200s is 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 a steal because that's like half a million where they're from right right so uh, frankly it's it's been a lot of transplants that that are that are that are you know coming into our state which is part of the reason why we've seen such a population boom um particularly here in the metro atlanta area so i i honestly think that you know that that's who's buying all the houses as you said and so yeah it, it's it's a tough deal i think it's something that we need to continue doing as a movement to try to have um housing that low income people can afford, right? Mm-hmm. That's the question. Because affordable housing, you start looking at whether right, whether it's the medium income, medium income for the area, medium income for the um, and that's not um, representative of the people that need home housing, which is the people that are, that are working in the areas where they work. Mm-hmm. And um, that tilts, you know, on the other half of the medium income or the lower half. And so, you know, that's that's a continued conversation about, you know, how do, how do we do that? And, and it has to be an ongoing conversation. It's, and it's eventually has to be more of a push of as a movement to to house individuals. And one of the things that I you know would hope a greater push, and I think that even from the federal government, this would be important, is to be able to do another push for um, home ownership, particularly for low income families. Right. One of the reasons that now, particularly those that are white and white middle class that they have um, the wealth of um, real estate is precisely because the government literally let let them have a home at you know it you know two three generations back right of course all the redlining and issues that were like not only are we going to give you a home and we're going to basically subsidize you becoming a homeowner but we're going to make sure that only you know white people live together mm-hmm. so and, and and so you know it was done before Right. People that can say that they've had a couple, two, three, um, two to four generations worth of home ownership. Um, if they have in terms of like as a family generation, it's only bec- because the government subsidized their initial home buyer, home ownership. And so I really do think that we do need uh, to revert back to a federal policy to uh, ensure home ownership for low income people. Yeah. And they need to do more. I can say job training too, because even like in the Loganville area, I'm seeing houses being built over here for like a quarter of a million and 400,000. And for those listeners that you don't are from the Georgia, Loganville is like 45 minutes outside of the city. Beaufort Highway is probably about what, 20 minutes, 30? Well, that was 30 minutes. No, yeah, tops 20. I mean, to, from the to, from Brookhaven, it's only 15, 20 minutes. Right. From like Doraville, may, maybe, maybe 25, 30 minutes, right? So. Mm-hmm. And I'm telling you right now, Loganville has no high paying jobs, <laughs> Not none, none. So for us to have $300,000 homes, I'm like, who the, again, who the hell is buying these houses around this area? Cause I'm like, I mean, I make good money, but I work in IT and of course me working in IT, I have to travel an hour to get to my job. And I just found out recently that we do have a Facebook data center around here, but it's a data center, it's in the middle of nowhere. So it's like for servers and stuff. But outside of that, all of the, the high paying jobs have been moved out into the major metropolitan areas. So it's like, you know, we do need to focus on and try to help out the people that's actually living within that community to at least get them jobs that can pay for those houses or get them the training to put them in those jobs that can pay for the house without having to incur any debt like all the rest of us had to incur that I'm probably going to die with when I leave this earth. It's going to be buried with me. <laughs> hey, that's my student loans. I, you know, coming from from also from from my family with my dad was like, you know, if, if, if you can't if you can't pay it cash, you, you know, you don't need it kind of kind of style. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
it, it was tough for me, the idea that I had to go to so, into so much debt just for student loans, just to go to law school. But that's my way that I could afford to go to law school. Mm-hmm. It was either be in debt for the rest of your life or don't go to law school. These were my two options. Right. And so, you know, what are you going to do? And so I took on the idea that I had that I was going to be in debt for the rest of my life. And it was coming with to me with me to the grave. So, you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't foresee mine going anywhere. Matter of fact, I want my PhD, so I, I plan on adding on more. So, yeah, it's it's going me to the grave. Unless I win the lottery, and then, you know, I'll pay it off then. Or something big happens in business otherwise. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, but but again, this the, those are the quote-unquote choices that we get to have, right? Right. Um, I, I'll tell you that a good 40% of the students that were in law school with me, my peers, um, uh, their families were paying their tuition, their room and board, their luxury cars. Right. And uh, I was I was working um, just so I can pay my basic expenses and then just accumulating debt for everything else. And Didn't it make you mad? <laughs> Especially when they come to class <laughs> and they're asleep and you sitting there having to stay focused and you got to pay attention and you got to study hard and then you turn on and get out of class. You got to go to work. Yep. Especially when I had to go, you know, go to work after class. And um, yeah. Uh, and you, you know what? It wasn't, you know, what made me mad about that whole situation was again, that the, the, the uh, so one of my, one of my legislative aides gave me, is a, saw, gave, you know, shared a meme with us and I, I thought that was like the best um, explanation of it. Sort of like have the confidence of a medi- mediocre white male, um, you know, was a little meme that she had. And uh, and that's exactly the experience of law school where you had a bunch of these um, kids that come from wealthy families. Everything's being paid for. And they thought that they were just, you know, uh, the cream of the cream of the crop and mm-hmm. uh, they, you know, they, they didn't even have to worry about even anything because uh, they're they're either either they're going to go work for their family or they were going to go work for the firm of some family friend. And, um, you know, that 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 was that. So yeah. And for the them workers. to walk in like they've done something special in their lives, you know, that's what irked me. Yes. <laughs> Not that I had to go to work, um, but what irked me was that uh, they would walk in with this notion that they've somehow done something special in their lives. And and um, and actually, you had a very interesting conversation with one of them uh, where his whole point to me was that if I was there, then that means anybody could be there. It's just mm-hmm. that I must have tried harder than anybody else. So what was I complaining about? Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that that's uh, that's again, that, that's what would irk me. Right. That sort of mentality of like I've done something special in life. And then on top of that, I'm like, I'm like, no, um, you know, having the few and an exempt exemption exception, um, you know, only proves the rule. It doesn't it doesn't mean that the, this, these opportunities are readily available for folks. And then on top of that, for me, even personally, right, um, it, it, it's taken so much support from different people, from having a strong foundation with, with my father to luckily, you know, having an, an awesome French teacher that, you know, again, wasn't 
someone may not randomly, ha- you know, be able to have been assigned to her as a French teacher. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I've had so many folks along the way that have been able to to mentor me that, you know, uh, one of the she's now passed away. She was the former president for Southern Education Foundation. She gave me my first internship and uh, she was one of the first few uh, African-American females that graduated from Columbia Law, the first African-American female that uh, was uh, president of law review at Columbia Law. And, um, you know, she would talk to me about her experience of going through that as well. And so, you know, I obviously told her I was going to go to law school. I was soon to graduate, you know, graduate. And she asked me, you know, when, uh, um, when I was going to take the LSAT and start preparing for, for the LSAT, I was like, yeah, well, I was working her internship and I was working another part-time job also because I've been working full-time since I was 13. Well, I've been working since I was 13, but I went mm-hmm. undergrad um, but, uh, working full-time and going to school full-time. Mm-hmm. Again, when you don't have a choice and you got to pay for your expenses and you have to help with the household expenses, it's just you do what you got to do. Mm-hmm. But um, so that being said, you know, I wasn't about to like uh, pop out sixteen hundred dollars to pay some prep program to 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 do a test, not right. to take the test, but to prep to do a test. <laughs> and so she said that I needed to that I needed to do that. And I was like, yeah, well, I'm just going to save up some more money and then I'll you know do it later. So the next day that I walked in, she called me into her office and um, she said between her and one of her good friends that I got to meet through the program uh, that they that they were um, uh, basically chipped in to cover my the cost of the to cover the cost of the the program. And so, you know, I mean, if, if it hasn't been for, for great opportunities along the way with, you know, incredible people uh, like her, then I wouldn't be standing with where he was standing as well. Right. And he didn't have to luck upon the, the fortune of, of meeting good people in his life. Yeah. That's always a benefit. Cause I had the same experience when I was going through high school, one of my teachers that kind of, cause I was quiet. I was a real introvert. Like I wasn't as outgoing as I am right now. And I still consider myself an introvert. <laughs> I was an introvert back in, in middle school and growing Cause I was picked on, I'm, I'm, cause I'm short. I mean, Brenda knows I'm short. So I was picked on throughout middle school and high school. And I'm the middle child of three. So my brother was very popular. He played football. And then outside of playing football, he was popular. My sister was pretty and she was cheerleading. So I was just like the little ugly duckling in the middle. So I got bullied throughout high school, but I had one teacher who believed in me, Miss Scott. And she was the one that was speaking over me about, you know, getting involved and make sure I stay active and telling me about uh, political science and policies and government. But my whole career path was IT. I wanted, and before IT, I thought about doing psychology because I love, I love the human mind. I love the way people think and trying to break down why people do what they do and why they act the way they act. And even now when people hear me in discussions, I try to ask people why, like I'm always asking a why to why actions are taking place. But yeah, I had her, she boosted me up and encouraged me to get better. And I've always thought out mentors. And that's one of the things I do encourage a lot of kids nowadays. It's like, there's nothing wrong with loving your parents, but your parents can only get you so far. Like you always have to seek out outside people to help further you in life. And even in your friendships, you always want to be around somebody that's doing a little bit better or just has a different drive to push you along. And I've been blessed to always find somebody that will help me out and speak over me. And then I had one guy that really set me on my path of getting in leadership. And I spoke about him in my last show, uh, Ron White. I was working at my company I was at. I was sitting at my desk. Only thing I want to do is work on tickets and build out cell towers and test stuff. And he thought, asked me, like, you ever thought about getting in leadership? And I was like, no. I said, I don't. Like I said, my last show, I don't, I don't like people. <laughs> like, I just want to get my work done and I just want to go home. 
and just be by myself. I'm like, if I want to go out on a date, I ask about it on a date. But outside of that, I did not like people. But he was like, no, I think you should get involved in management. I think you'd be a good fit for it. And we sat on and talked and he encouraged me to get into it. So I, I didn't even have to apply for it. I got into the job and they groomed me. I went through tons of leadership development classes. And I found out doing that, that I, that's when I really found out I had a passion for people. Because prior to that, I would do volunteer work because growing up in Atlanta, you see a lot of growing up, well, growing up in Stone Mountain and growing up coming out of Macon, Georgia, you see a lot of hardships within low, like, like Brenda said, in low income communities. So I always had a passion for trying to help people out and try to be somebody different and inspiration of people I come from. Because coming out of a small town, if you made it out, like if you left like from in Macon, Macon is in rural Georgia. If you left out of Macon and you were in Atlanta, you was wow. be doing something big. And to us, we just we moved somewhere for a better opportunity to have better income and a better a better way of living. But we weren't doing any better than those people in Macon. But I can't say it allowed us to have a better opportunity to meet people that were doing better than those down there. So I think like in my last show, I was like, you have to be a responsibility to go back and pull some of those people up to be an example to them and show them that you don't have to be stuck in those small areas or in those small places where gentrification is taking place and people being pushed out that there is an, an outlet out. So no, yeah, it all, it is always good to have somebody there to inspire you and encourage you to do better and actually invest in you in your life. Absolutely. Well, right. But the, the problem is that we need all that, right. All, right. all that situations to get you through the, those access and opportunities that you don't otherwise have. And so, you know, that, that makes a world of a difference. So, so that's why I tell folks, you know, it wasn't that Brenda was any smarter or any better than a lot of my peers that were actually. And uh, it just so happened that, you know, maybe some amount of preparation, you know, opportunity being operation and, and, and or luck being operation, um, preparation and opportunity. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I've heard that too plenty of times. Oh, you're so lucky. I'm like, yeah, because um, it's called work. Right. <laughs> and I don't know some other magic formula other than that. So, but, but again, but that, but it also isn't just your own effort, right? It just mm-hmm. really requires a, a lot of push and pull along the way. And, um, and some of us, um, then at that point, maybe are lucky enough to run into some great individuals that want to help you, or at least give you some word of encouragement. Cause the help has been for me, all sorts of, you know, advice, just general encouragement, just allowing me to be able to talk through, you know, I, uh, my ideas and, just someone listening, even if they, they offer not necessarily, you know, anything tangible. So, you know, that, that's, that's part of the problem that, that we face with, um, you know, raising, raising all the, all the ships in the sea, right. That it just Mm -hmm. requires so much more for different people, which is one of the things with education that I have been, um, has been always a a priority of mine in terms of thinking of education and, and how we actually need to start thinking about everything in terms of equity, right. Because equity being, you know, what is it that each individual person needs versus, you know, everyone kind of gets the same thing, but if everyone gets the same amount, uh, then you still are always starting from a different place on the playing field mm-hmm. and will always be at a, at a greater disadvantage or disadvantage depending on, on the situation that you started off with. But, you know, but the idea with equity is that you cover and you make up 
for what an individual person needs, um, whether it's, you know, at the training level, that you, like you said, you know, whether it's at the education level. So that's, you know, that's an important thing. I think that for, for many years and even myself, you know, uh, in, in, in terms of the space of uh, civil rights and, and advocacy and, and whatever kind of advocacy work that I did, the conversation was always about equality and, and you know, equal, equal justice and equal under the law, which, which is, again, something that is highly important to me, but that really has transitioned into a mindset of like, we, we need more than equality. What we need is equity. And mm-hmm. that's sort of the push that we need to, and, and that actually goes back to the same conversation we're having before about, about affordable housing, right? Uh, the issue is, is equity and, and, and affordability is a matter of equity. It's not a matter of equality because again, you can have, even if you have a relatively lower cost dwelling in comparison to the general area that's still not necessarily equitable to your worker at the grocery store, your worker at the gas station, you know, your, your server, um, or your teacher or your fireman, right. That, that's mm-hmm. that, you know, it's, it's an equitable issue that we really need to discuss in every, and it, it's the conversation we need to have in all of our policy discussions now. Right. It should be fair. And I, we'll get on to you going into the Gwinnett uh, Democratic Party. But yeah, it should be fair across the board because same thing you went through out in the Brookhaven area. A lot of us saw in the south side of DeKalb County, once everybody moved out and went towards the north end, all the money got snatched out. So we had to get old recycled books if we got books. And everything was tore up. Our classrooms were breaking down. My school, that school to prison pipeline was real for us because we didn't even have windows in our classrooms. Like the only time we saw daylight is when we went outside for like PE or we had uh, the sunroom or the, yeah, within the cafeteria itself. So we didn't even get a chance to even see outside (laughs) until it was PE time or school was dismissed for today. So and that actually does help in changing kids' mindsets and encouraging them to, you know, there is something else out there. Right. No. And, and like, again, I saw that in ninth grade, right. Coming back again, we had broken windows, you know, the, the whole, mm-hmm. the whole nine yard, but, um, but yeah, books, I mean, you remember, I don't know if you remember everyone, everyone's remember like there used to be a spot where you're supposed to put your name and it had yeah. a, a line of like 20 people. Yeah. And, and that book was like, <laughs> there was no more space. It was right. <laughs> you know, that's the books we had. I'm like, man, these, these books are like 20 years old. I mean, the, the information here is out of date, but you know, that was one key example, but the other one that really, really resonated with me. Um, and this was again, once I was, you know, graduated from college and I went back to my, uh, this was my middle school. And when I was in that middle school, they had two elective courses, home ec and some sort of attempt at being a tech um, elective. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so by the time I went back to my middle, that, that middle, my middle school to, you know, I, I was asked to speak. Um, they had two electives and this was like, that was almost 15 years later, home ec and that same tech class. And now what it's been uh, going to be, what, like when a little bit under 25 years and they have the same two electives. Now, see, it ain't that bad where I came from. Because <laughs> Redan has gotten upgrades. That was my high school. And uh, Miller Grove has gotten some upgrades. They do have a lot of better programs out there. Money is still bad around the area. The area is going downhill, but at least the schools, the school has gotten a lot better. Yeah, I know about Cross Keys. I know all about Cross Keys growing up. <laughs> so, you know, in the cab kind of, we had Cross Keys, you had um, Southwest DeKalb, mm-hmm. you had Redan, you had Lithonia. What was one of the other ones, the other big ones? 
Tri-City. Tri-Cities, yes. Yeah, I had lots of friends yeah. there. <laughs> a lot of probably friends I shouldn't have, but you know, that's a different oh, story. Yeah, I mean, we were kids then. <laughs> <laughs> so now you've you've gotten into law, you've worked your way up, you got ran for office. So what prompted you in your run for office and then what led you down your path to actually becoming the Latino president of Gwinnett County Democratic Party? Uh, why I ran for office, I guess the 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 quick and dirty <laughs> of, of a long story is um probably a problem that I have all my life, which is like the former state representative uh, or the then former state representative of my district pissed me off. You know, we didn't have such a really good conversation. Uh, he went on this tangent about being that the biggest problem in our district was people having chickens in their backyards. And yes, <laughs> that was my face, too. I was like, oh, no. yeah, for real, for real. So I actually thought that I was like, for a second, it really, I really thought I was on candid camera or something. Like, <laughs> no joke. You know, these folks are messing with me. Like this guy's just saying this, these weird things is going into this event about like chickens and some chickens chasing him. And cause some people don't, people don't, don't take care of their chickens and all sorts of stuff that he was saying. I'm like, he's not for real. Right. And I'm looking around expecting for, you know, to see some sort of camera or something crew come out. Um, but you know, at some point he said something along the lines of, you know, the problem was that all of these people are crossing the border from Mexico and they think they're still in Mexico. So when he said that, I was like, oh, no, he means what he says. And, you know, and I think this is a good connection to what you were going to ask me. The second question was, you know, this was a person that had been the rep for uh, going on 12 years at that point. Um, mm-hmm. He fin- finished up his term and um, had always ran and, and um, had a D for Democrat after his name. So, you know, uh, that is also why I know that, you know, I, I, I chair the Gwinnett Democrats and, you know, and, and I think generally uh, we have a good policy positions and, and generally, uh, you know, we can run good candidates. But I also understand that uh, we really have to know who our electeds are, regardless of party affiliation. And that's still something very critical that we always have to look at. Um, so, you know, so that being said, that's what he said. So I was a bit pissed off. And um, I think I finished something along the lines. I told him that uh, that uh, in my then 10 years of living in Winnet County, I didn't know anybody personally that owned chickens. But um, the only person that I did happen to know that owned chickens was a white woman. And she lived in Decatur um, because she was a former co-worker of mine. And she used to sell us her, you know, the eggs. Mm-hmm. And so he said something along the lines of like, I must be as bad as those people. And so I told him, depending on who you ask, I, I, I sometimes am. And I told him, I guess there was nothing else that we needed to meet about. And when I walked out of there, that's when I told myself I had to run for office. And again, it was more of a a situation where I felt compelled that I had to uh, rather than necessarily wanting to, because I at that point, I was really considering whether I should or shouldn't. I had, um, you know, more or less started my practice. I was was going well. Um, It wasn't within my timeline of what I expected to do in life. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, circumstances are what they are always again. I think it's a common theme in my life that um, things are done simply because life circumstances push you that way. And there's a need, right. Or, or, mm-hmm. or, or some sort of sense of obligation. Uh, and so that's, um, that's how I ended up personally deciding to run for office uh, and, and ran and, and got elected for those two terms, then ran for um this last election cycle for for the Senate Congressional District. I didn't come out of my primary. Um, And then at some point towards the end of last year, 
did they decided to to start chairing the the Winnet Democrats and and one of the main reasons I ultimately decided to do so was part of what we're discussing and what we have been discussing the need um, of all institutions right including the Democratic Party to actually engage those people that we tend to be more supportive of in our policies, at least in our platforms, if not our speeches, uh, but that sometimes we also don't do a good enough job as enga- at engaging uh, what we call in, in in this business low propensity voters, right, or or or, or infrequent voters, um, potential first time voters, and we have a lot of those in Winnet, and we have a lot of those that are not part of what is traditionally considered the democratic base, mm-hmm. and. And um, that are being excluded both from the conversation and they're being excluded also from policy decisions and they're being excluded from being candidates Um, and not excluded in the sense of like outright not being allowed. But um, if you don't engage people and if you don't welcome people, uh, that in an essence is the same as excluding them. So I thought that, you know. There's a need for us, despite the the many wins and good wins that we've had, especially these last two election cycles here in our county. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there is a need for greater reception to to particularly the very very um, diverse nature of our county and diverse by all means, because like you're saying, right, you're in Loganville, I'm here down here in Norcross. Um, you know, between Norcross and Loganville, all sorts of things happen from yes. some levels to cows mm-hmm. to to, you know, the best of any type of food you want under the world in the world. So, you know, when has has such a such a richness beyond just, you know, the racial, ethnic the diversity that we tend to think about and a lot of needs, um, especially at, uh, across financial uh, financial uh, and wealth levels within our county as well. So, um, you know, that's that's ultimately, I think, why why I thought that, you know, it's it's important to kind of continue that work through through the Winnet Democrats. Yeah, because I'm a big proponent of, you know, I don't care if you're from here or not. If you're doing the work that most Americans will be doing, you should be getting paid what an American should be getting paid, <laughs> which is why I think we I'm glad we have the change in diversity we have right now because I mean you know as well as I do coming in Gwinnett County at a young age Gwinnett County didn't look the way it looked when we were growing up no, at no. all especially at Loganville all. Loganville uh-huh. yes Whew. Loganville listen there's <laughs> sometimes when I'm driving through and I have to drive through these northern parts of Gwinnett I'm like I'm not sure. I'm not sure that this is the same as the one that I know, mm-hmm. but, no, but it is because that's I me. And that's the whole point of the saying about the diversity. But yeah, I remember still when I when I lived in Brookhaven. Right. And and that's when they were opening up when that place small, mm-hmm. which now just got bought out by the county. Finally, the process has gone through um, and they're going to you know redevelop, which ultimately will be a regentrifying of that area. And it's going to affect the AAP. I community that's there and the businesses, particularly those um, of Korean and, and Vietnamese background. But, you know, mm-hmm. same story, different place, new time, but same story. Um, but that being said, you know, when it was the happening place, I kid you not, it was a day trip. Like for us, for for, for me to think that we were going to go to when that place small was like it was a day trip. Like we we're going to go visit the whole day. We we're going to drive way out there. Mm-hmm. Right. So, you know, it's gone from that to where we are now. Yeah, and I'm glad it did, but I mean, I'm hoping they can come in and do some change because it's the same with um, Stonecrest now because Stonecrest has some new ownerships from some venture capitalists down in Florida. And I'm hoping they come in and do what was how it was done before when we had the Starbucks and the anchor stores and it was a good place until all the money left and everything went downhill. And I'm hoping the same thing for Gwinnett Place Mall because I remember Gwinnett Place Mall was nice. 
before the Mall of Georgia and all the money went up north <laughs> and right. it got pulled out from the Gwinnett County, the Duluth area, which is like you said, the Koreans and Hispanic community and just the entire Asian community. Mm-hmm. So I'm hoping that with them buying it out, it will present, well, I'm not hoping, I'm sure it will present new change and opportunities for everybody and make it a lot better. Because again, I'm glad that we have the diversity now that we that we didn't have back then. Cause I can remember getting profiled tons of time off of, when I was working at Office Max off of Snellville, off of 78. And you know, it's, it's interesting. Like when it was, I think I first met you when it was for the ice thing out at the uh, courthouse. Yeah, and they were having people come out and speak. And I was listening to some of the old time residents and they were talking about how great Gwinnett County was and Stone Mountain was like 50 years ago. And I was like, word? I was like, great for who? <laughs> I was like, really? <laughs> I'm like, I don't think so. I'm like, it might have been good for you, but I was like, no, no, not for uh, some of us minorities. It was not. It was not great 50 years ago. No. no. Mm-mm. It and was I'm like only... 40 years ago. No, no. <laughs> Cause I'm like, it's, which is why I'm helping out with, with smack. And so smack is stone mountain action coalition. And I found out what they were doing out of stone mountain area to try to have the Confederate stuff removed. I'm like, I'm all in it. Cause I'm like, I grew up around the corner off of uh Rockbridge road and off of Redan road and in Harrison. So I'm like, no, I'm going to be here, you know, full force to help y'all out and get this stuff changed. Cause it should have been changed a long time ago. So that being said, so we're talking about disproportionate communities and those like the, the voters that the untraditional voters, which house some of those areas and Gwinnett County. What is it? What do you think the plans are now going forward after 2020? Because we saw a huge change in voters in 2020 to entice those people to come back to the party and have belief in the actual Democratic Party again. Well, again, so so for me, it's like you got to start off with the municipals, right? And get people if you get people interested, invested in, in voting in their municipals, you know, you don't got to worry about them in the midterms. They're going to go out and vote. But of course, you know, the, the, the area geographically of what is part of incorporated cities versus our, our county, we're still about 60 ish percent, a little bit over 60 percent unincorporated in terms of our county. But um, so but but it matters, right? It matters to start at, at, a, at a level at a university that's that's manageable and then um, again the idea is to continue pushing for uh, good candidates right and um, and better candidates right there, there, mm-hmm. there's there's a, there's a difference in that I, and I think that each time that we run a new election cycle that's the two things we should be considering should we considering you know getting good candidates and also getting better candidates and that changes what that means every election cycle and you know and I'm a proponent of of also um, not having any individual, you know, kind of stagnate in different positions for, you know, overly amounts of time, uh, because I do think that, you know, there's always those changes in perspective and societal philosophies. There's also generational changes. There's technology changes, right? Even when I stepped into the legislature in 2016, I remember that first legislative session that uh, there was a bill about, uh, you know, what to do with some some of the autonomous vehicles and such. And one of the legislators like stood up for her inquiry to kind of be funny, but it wasn't funny. At this, it wasn't as funny for me. Like I understood why it was funny, but it wasn't where he stands up and he, you know, he has a flip phone mm-hmm. and he opens his flip phone and he says, Oh, I don't want, I don't want my cell phone driving my car. And I'm like, Oh my God. Um, so, you know, and when you had, you know, half the legislators that literally do not are unwilling to utilize email, Right. And so so when you have these sort of individuals that are elected, that that doesn't breed for the best innovative policy that you can have. 
And, and so again, that's why the, the, the work that each election cycle always brings. And that's why everyone, you know, tends to always say that some election cycle is the most, um, you know, meaningful, important or existential threat to the world of an election, because it's true, because every election should be every election mm-hmm. should be the, you know, the next step to continue improving. And so each election cycle should be important in each election cycle. We should keep looking for good candidates. And most importantly, we need to start. Look, we need to keep looking for better candidates. And so that's why I really do truly believe that each everybody, everybody's um, election cycle is equally um, important as valuable. And each one feels so important important um, because different changes that are going on. And of course, again, beyond the municipals in 2022, it is going to be a very impactful and important election election cycle, particularly on the Democratic side, where we're likely all hoping, assuming that um, Stacey Abrams is going to run again uh, for, for the top ticket. And, you know, what that means, especially with the wins that we had the, just just this January of 2021 with both mm-hmm. the US senators um, as statewide positions. And um, it's going to be a tough primary as well, in all honesty, because uh, uh, plenty of people are, are hoping, you know, that Abrams is finally going to get get us over the top. Um, and those that fought, you know, those the 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 statewide positions that come under the ballot under her ballot or under her name in the ballot. And so, you know, it's going to be a tough primary as well with with a lot of candidates running um, in, in both party tickets. So, uh, you know, Duncan today said he wasn't going to run for lieutenant governor again. Right. So he's like peace because he knows that's going to it's going to be a wild 2022. And um, and so that's that's my full expectation. Right. That, that we are going to have another difficult election cycle. We're going to have, of course, a lot of issues and um, concerns with um, the access simply to be able to cast your ballot and whether that, you know, whether you're going to be criminalized for, for, for voting, right. Whether you're going to be criminalized for handing somebody some water. And so all of these issues that we've been experiencing with this last, this last legislative session that just passed and, you know, what that's going to mean, redistricting that's going to happen in a special election at the end of November is going to also cause, you know, different concerns of confusion also with voters about where do I vote now? Did my precinct change? Has alliance changed? You know, I'm used to voting for X person for X, you know, 10 plus years. And now I might not be voting for that uh, specific person anymore. So a lot of work that has to be done, voter education aside as well. A lot of work that has to be done to protect um, voters and to protect voter access. So, you know, that's um, that's I think that, you know, what I ask of everyone that's going to that's what watching us is that um, we need all hands on deck. Uh, and, and it is going to be a crucial election cycle. It's going to be crucial in terms of the direction that Georgia keeps taking, right? Ultimately, mm-hmm. because especially because we're talking about our statewide positions and how that fundamentally affects every Georgian, uh, whether you live in outside of Metro Atlanta, rural area, whether you meet, you know live outside of Metro Atlanta, but it, but in a more urban place, like you mentioned, whether it's your city centered Columbus, city centered Macon. So yeah, it's 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 time, right? And and the time to start getting involved in this work is not in 2022. The time to get um, started in this work is today in 20, you know, it, on April 8th, 2021. Right. Because, I mean, that's what all seats are important now. And if we didn't see that last year, we should have saw that because you're talking about all of your local seats, all the way up to your federal seats are important because that pandemic highlighted a lot of vulnerabilities and faults that we have in place that should have been fixed a long time ago, especially when you're talking about technology, because a lot of kids now had to do school virtually. 
and a lot of areas don't have access to high-speed internet. And then you look at the cell towers that's in the area. So they was giving out, especially when they counted, is giving out hot spots. And I'm like, you know, that's cool. You gave them a hot spot, but if your cell tower doesn't support like 4G LTE, then you might as well just be on dial-up. So I'm like, it's really not doing you any good. And so we should have been addressing that issue a long time ago. And they actually did bring it up to deal some years back. And he had supposedly made a deal to help out with uh, the ISPs, the internet service providers to get them extend uh, fiber all the way up to North Georgia because the businesses up there were complaining because they were still doing credit card swipes. So I was like, yes, can you believe in 2012, <laughs> people are still doing credit card swipes and people were getting frustrated and leaving because they were like, we don't have time to wait in line for a credit card swipe. And we don't even know how secure it is because from a security perspective, that's not that's not really secure at all. Right. So. They he was ta- supposedly working along with ISPs. It never happened. So all these things have transpired. Then you're talking about criminal justice reform, and then now we're putting a spotlight on how the police are actually treating people, especially in Georgia too. And you know now you see how important local elections are from your sheriffs to your judges to your commissioners. All of those things are important to make sure they spotlight and highlight the things that's important to you and change your community up. Right. So I'm glad. Which is the same thing, right? You can't be more local than your municipals. If you live in city right. limits, you know? And the thing is, like, when we think about cities, we think about, again, we think the the, the Atlantas, the, the mm-hmm. Columbus, the Savannas. But no, it's it's Mm-mm. Loganville. <laughs> right. Right? Your city of Loganville. If you live in city proper, you, you can't get closer government than that. Right. So, yeah, all elections are important. And we want, like I talk about with my coach, we talk about it all the time, get up and get involved. Volunteer, volunteer, winning Democrats. We are looking for volunteers. The cab Democrats, I don't even typically shout them out, but the cab Democrats, they are looking for volunteers. And I don't shout them out because I don't live in the cab. I live on the Gwinnett side of the house. But yes, get involved with your local parties so you can get out and get out and let people know about their rights to vote. And yeah, this new SB202, I know you talked about it in your, your last interview you did, but I'm not, to me, I look at it as they'd been doing it before. I mean, they did it to Stacey. So I'm like, they're always suppressing our right to vote. So my thing is, I'm not going to get too mad. Is it wrong? Is it, is it targeted? Yes, it is. But I'm like, okay, well, like this, like well, the cop. Right. So I'm like, we got to go out there, play by their rules, but I'm saying play by their rules to the 10th power. So we can't operate within 150 feet. Okay, well then we, you know, we'll make it a party. We'll have sound speakers out there. We'll have barbecues going. Like the dude said, and I'm not going to call his name. I don't call his name on my show. He said, well, people waiting a long time in line, they can call out Uber Eats or Grubhub. I was like, oh, oh, okay. So I'm like, so we going <laughs> we having food delivery. I was like, well, how about addressing the issue as to why we have to wait in line for five to six hours? Right. I'm like, let's fix that. Exactly. Exactly. But in the meantime, we can't fix that if we don't have, again, good and better elected officials. Yep. Right. So uh, and, and again, the only cure is by voting. And and also, the you know, that is the one main cure that goes mm-hmm. towards that. But then the other thing is, of course, you know, us as individuals, if we're mad, if we're upset, if we don't like it, if we think it's you know racially motivated, if we, we think it's a setback, uh, you know, you know, you can call it all of these great hashtag names. But my question is, like, what are you doing about it? Right. Right. Which person did you take to vote that otherwise wouldn't have voted? You know, mm-hmm. which person did you help, you know, fill out a voter registration card online so that they could get registered to vote? You know, what, you know, who did you, you know, drag into your car and take them to the polls with? You right. know, there's no point in going to the polls with someone that's already going to the polls. The question is, like, you know, who are you taking to the polls that wasn't otherwise going to go? Right. And um, and if you can't tell me what you're doing about those things, then you know, there's nothing to complain about. Right. So, yeah, if you're not involved in the process of helping out to make change, then, yeah, I don't want to hear it. 
don't come to me crying because I or oh, Brenda, no, I shoot from the hip. <laughs> I'm gonna tell you how it is. Cause I mean, like I said, I'm I'm from here. So to see people complain and then they say, oh, well, my vote don't matter. I'm like, well, the reason your vote don't matter because you're not exercising your right to vote. And you're not getting out there to push people to if you don't want to run, but you might know somebody that is very active, getting them to run for office. Because like Brenda said, we do need legitimate candidates because that's one of the things I do talk about like on my show itself, like I had the real talking conversation. I, and I had a conversation with somebody recently is that I don't care about your policy. I honestly don't care about your policy because I can see what your policies are on your website. I want to know who you are as an individual, what you represent, what do you bring to the table? What, what kind of changes do you want to actually make within the community? And I want to learn about your values because if I can trust you as an individual, then I know you will stand behind a policy that you, 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 you know, you pride over yourself and you want to put it out on the spotlight. That's my concern. Now, you know, everybody might not be built the same way, but for me, I like knowing the individual person because I can get a feel for who you are personally, because not everything that you say you want to do is going to happen once you get put into place. But at least I know if your character is strong, you are working towards the benefit of the people who actually put you in there to help us out. Yeah. And that's a very important part about, you know, voter education. Right. And um, and I think that I mean, more from the civic sense rather than than from, you know, the give information about how to vote um, is that, you know, I, I'm, I, I'm, I have a similar stance with you about how I look at candidates and from my own personal perspective, it's, you know, I, I don't care what your website says, you know, because mm-hmm. some consultant told you the buzzwords say, actually, I don't even care what you say in your speech. Cause again, right. some consultant told you what the buzzwords are, what's the trending topic, you know, what's the, you know, all of these things as, as you and I know, Antonio, with, with the political operatives and such, um, you know, and, and then a lot of times, you know, a lot of candidates in reality, we speak about, and I'll say we, as, as, as a, as a, been a candidate three times, um, you know, we, we talk about what we would hope to do, mm-hmm. uh, what we hope to do versus what we can do in, in the real, real, real situation of the, the structure that we plan on serving, like for myself in the state legislature and the house side, I always told myself, I told, told people like I am one of 180 votes. Like mm-hmm. I can tell you how one person is going to vote. What ultimately happens with the policy, if it gets pushed or not, um, is dependent on 90 other people. And the reality is that we don't have 90 other people. Right. That right. they push some of the things that I would want to push. And so I was real straightforward with people with that when I first ran and they, you know, folks kept telling me that wasn't a very inspiring message to tell them that I could only vote my one vote. Um, but it was important for me, for people to understand the process and to understand the reality. And I don't believe in, in you know, selling, you know, cotton candy and ice cream when I know right. that. Uh, what we're going to get. Uh, and I think that that's what causes people to become disenchanted with the process too, right? Because they hear what candidates and they're, you know, they're going to get cotton candy and ice cream and then they don't get cotton candy and ice cream. And then they're like, well, you see my, what's the point of voting? And so that's one of the reasons that I don't appreciate um, that way of galvanizing people. But, um, but again, the, the more realistic approach isn't as motivating. And, you know, of course, you know, I can, I can understand that, but yeah, for me personally as well, when I consider candidates, um, like you said, right. You, you, you what you said, knowing the person and, and, you know, who they are as, 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 as real people <laughs> that mm-hmm. we started off with. But for me, it's like, tell me what you've done before to do, to, to do the work that you say you want to do going forward. And for me, that's what tells me about the person. Cause if you've been doing the work, whether it's, you know, to help that one person or help two people or help, you know, 
200. Um, but I know you've already done the things that you've been saying you want to do now going forward as an elected. And so I find greater value in finding out what people have been doing before they decided to run for office. And for me, that tells me more about who they're going to be as an elected than anything their website might say. Right. Yes. Yeah, because you're right. I mean, we're going to put the uh, <laughs> what the flavor of the month is out there to try to sell you on it when really we don't even care. We're just trying to get a title. So, um, yes. And so as we wind it down, as we wind it down, what do you what are your projections or what do you see the party going forward now? Like with all that we've talked about and the need for change and the changes being put into place and your ideas and things you're putting in place for Gwinnett County, for GCDP, like what do you see? us going forward to inspire some of these people to actually get involved and get out? Listen, here's the reality. Um, Democrats are going to continue winning statewide. You know, that's not going to change just because of one of the things that we mentioned, right? People are moving into Georgia. Our generations, um, our young people are getting older, getting a voting age. Those that have become our young people now, young professionals are becoming, you know, young adults and um, not so young anymore adults. Right. (laughs) Um, And so and, and I think that all of that with with where they are in society, how they grew up, what they know, their politics have changed. So Georgia has changed hands down and mm-hmm. it's not turning around anytime soon. And so I think that for the context of, of Democrats, um, you know, the, the future is ours. And so the question for me, you know, first right now, especially for next election cycle in the immediate for the 22 midterms is is, again, continuing to push to show that we can win these seats. Uh, But for me, long term is what we've been talking about. Then once we win these seats and and once we know that they are our seats and that, you know, that they're going to be Democratic seats, then the question is to make sure that we're electing better candidates. Right. Then we get to the better side. And so. That's it. I mean, Georgia, Georgia has changed, Um, you know, not, you know, not in the sense of like we're kind of purple or, you know, or, or, or we're bright blue. It's not either. It's not those, you know, but so but we're not changing. We're not in a process. We've, we've already changed. Now what we need to get is to make sure that people um, exercise that power that we otherwise have um basically allowed to to be taken away from us because we've been disenchanted with the process or we thought change wasn't possible. Um, and and so that, like you said, we've seen it already. That's not the case. That's not where Georgia is. And that's not who Georgia is anymore. And now it's a matter that we understand that that is not who Georgia is anymore and that we you know put in our time, talent and treasure to be able to push Georgia in that direction quicker uh, you know, I guess for me, that's what I see, right? The difference of like how quick and how soon we're going to get that done. And, you know, I, I fully expect us to have um, the governor's seat and I'm definitely going to work to make sure we have that governor's seat. And yeah, that's that the way. <laughs> hey, and that's all I'm asking. That's all I'm asking for tonight <laughs> and for the next, you know, a hundred, well, well, a, a year and a half. You know, we got it. We got to work on that governor's seat because, again, you know, that ultimately is going to likely push over the other um, statewide candidates and the local seats in the state legislature. And then we have to work in the state legislature. Right. Because, you know, again, Abrams can only assuming it's Abrams can only do but so much if we don't have a better state legislature. So, yeah, just just a lot of work. That's all I can say. We just have a lot of work to do uh, to go to make sure that we secure the change that has already happened in Georgia. And Georgia. 
Georgia is blue. I mean, you see it now that Georgia is blue. It's not purple. And even in, even then, you saw the power of the change that you can make because they went in and want to change pop bills up <laughs> to prevent you from getting out and voting. And that was without all the votes coming in because we still had a ton of people that didn't show up to vote. So, you know, you have the power to make the change you want within your community. So as a final thought, Miss Brenda, Thank you for appearing on the show. If you can uh, bless over us with some uh, words of encouragement before we leave. Words of encouragement. Let's see. Just summing up of what what we've been talking about, that we 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 have to exercise our power. You know, that that's the word of encouragement that I can give. That's something that, you know, has has pushed me many a days, um, including the days that I had no idea what I'm doing, which is frequent days, is that, you know, we have our individualized power. And for me, that comes comes with agency. Right. Regardless of, you know, the structural barriers, the structural obstacles, the the legal issues, uh, we still have agency to do something. And one of the things that um, I can give as a best example uh, that two related examples, one has been with my legislative aides and the fact that they're young, young, um, young, well, young kids, young adults, really college students, is that one of the best things about being elected or the, the, the thing probably that I miss most is that I had a really large cohort of, of interns, about eight per session. And uh, when the kids come in, because many of them, you know, hadn't been involved in political stuff. Um, many of them hadn't even stepped into the Capitol and we would give them a tour and we kind of discuss what they're, what they were supposed to do. And you could see it, right? Some of them were like awestruck because of the building. Some of them looked a little bit intimidated and some of them looked concerned because, because they didn't, um, uh, wasn't weren't sure if they could do the, the, the work. And I'm like, hey, don't worry about it. We're all learning here. We all don't know what we're doing, but we try our best. Right. Mm-hmm. And so to see them walk around that way um, and then less than 40 days later, um, really probably at the 30 day ish marker um, in for the four legislative sessions, it happened every single session with every single one of them. By the time we were towards the end of the legislative session of the 40 day cycle, I would see them walk in like they should have walked in the first day. They walked in like they own the place because they do own it. Mm-hmm. Uh, they walked into with the confidence to be able to stop any legislator and say, hey, how's this bill going? Hey, how are you going to vote on this bill? Hey, listen, these people came here to talk to you because they have these thoughts about this bill. Um, and they, you know, sat around anywhere they wanted in that Capitol. They, you know told jokes, had fun, had laughs, had frustrations, were angered, um, but it was their capital. And, you know, that's what I can give in terms of encouragement. We have to take ownership and agency of the power that we have. And we have to know that these government institutions and those that have the privilege to be elected um, are really accountable to us and that we should have the confidence to be able to know that we can walk into to, to our government. So that's the work we got to do. Thank you for that. And for my final thoughts, it's kind of what we're talking about, which is why I like having this conversation to hear about who people really are and where they come from and what built them on to build them upon, you know, to their foundation to get them where they are right now is 
Never let the moments of your past dictate your future. Embrace the flaws that make up you because only you know the glue that holds you together and provided fuel to push you forward. Therefore, you can't make it to your promised destination if there's no fuel to get you there. And you can't say you got there without the need of that fuel. So accept everything that you were built of to truly complete your journey and empower you onto your next frontier. I am Antonio Hicks, aka Escaping the Matrix. This is PTG TV. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please comment leave a, a like button if you can or follow me on PTG TV online. I want to thank the Miss Madam President again, especially on the tail end of Women's History Month, especially International Women's History Month because women are uh, a, necessity, a necessity within our community. And I love seeing the women that's out there making the changes that this needed to be made within our community because you won't have a man without a woman. Period. <laughs> you can't have a society if it's not for the backbones and the struggle for the women that help boost us up to push us to be the best that we can be. So thank you all for tuning in. Love you all. Stay safe and remember to be your authentic you. Peace out.